We've been in a, a mini-series of sorts, which we don't do too often around here, but we've been in one talking about some of the more challenging questions that Christians faith, face about our faith. In this context that we live in, this secular world that doesn't embrace our faith. And so we understand there are pressures, and we've been thinking through some of those. And we started by thinking about Jesus, and whether or not He could be the only way to God. We talked about whether Christianity is oppressive and takes away our freedom as humans. And a lot of times that's what people think when we say that Jesus is the only way. But we discovered that the Bible teaches that without Jesus, our wills are chained up and unable to choose and experience what joy in life is really all about. So Jesus frees us. And when the Bible talks about freedom, that's what it means. It frees our wills from sin and death to then now choose the good and what is right. And so that's true freedom. Freedom from darkness, freedom from our own self-destruction. And then we thought about the Bible. And the Bible is at the center of one of the most burning questions for a lot of people. Whether this book can be taken seriously or not. How do we read it? Should we take it literally? And we only just scratched the surface of this very important question. And then we started wondering about the church. That's something you never stop wondering about, probably. The people of God. We thought about specifically whether the injustices of history can or should be laid at the church's feet. And there's a bit of a mixed response there. And then last week, Pat Roach spoke and he helped us understand and feel deeply the reality that the church is the presence of God in the world. Now, that's not everything that we've covered, but it hit some highlights, and, and those are pretty important questions, aren't they? There may be more that we should ponder together. Addressing questions like this is sometimes referred to as the work of apologetics. Apologetics is an effort to answer the challenges to the Christian faith with some sort of coherent answers, some type of rationale. But I want you to hear that I agree with Pat when he quoted the Church Father Origen in saying that all the answers Christians could give the world for their challenges or their attacks don't really amount to that much because, did you catch this last week? The only true interpretation of the good news of God to the world is the people of God. Now, how jolting is that? You want to find God? You want to see Him? You want to encounter real faith and joy and hope and love? You, know what it, you want to know what it is to experience forgiveness and to have a new beginning? You want to have meaning in life? You want to lose all fear of failure, even the fear death itself? Well, the Bible says, settle in with the true people of God and you'll find God. Isn't that remarkable? 
some of you know the name Dallas Willard. He passed away a number of years ago. And uh, Dallas was regularly, people regularly said to him, you know what, I've grown up in the church and I find that non-Christian people are better to be around than some of these Christian people. And Dallas's response, he was a philosopher at USC, so he was bright, okay? Dallas's response was always, yeah, well, just wait a while. Kind of what the New Testament is trying to say to us. Over the long haul, when people who are devoted to followers of Jesus are gathered with each other around word and sacrament in prayerful communion with God, that's where God is. And by the way, that's true for us in town. Two or three gathered in His name is what we're told. We don't need to be distributing weekly segments on TikTok. Nor are we required to hit a critical mass of people before you'll be able to find God here. In-town church is the interpretation of the good news of Jesus to the world. And that includes you. Now, tomorrow, at work, Thursday afternoon when you're pushing for the weekend, in the evening when you get the email or call that you don't want to get, your opportunity to be the interpretation of the good news of Jesus to the world. So, apologetics, answering these questions, these challenges, it can be helpful. It can be helpful especially for believers, but I'd like to caution us about the discipline as well. Because getting satisfactory answers to all the difficult questions in life has a little bit of a shadow side to it. When we engage in a robust intellectual pursuit, we can be tempted with something. We can be tempted to think that as soon as we get the answers right, then out pops a faithful follower of Jesus. So we just put all the answers in the tin, stick it in the oven, turn up the heat just slightly, and boom, there's your faithful follower. Because they've got them all right here. But Jesus isn't primarily an intellectual quest. Now it certainly involves and requires the mind, but we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to think that as soon as something appears rational to us and we can test it and verify it, so to speak, then all of a sudden we become mature followers of Jesus. Knowledge may be part of the journey, but it's not the sum total of the journey or even the goal of the journey. Many years ago, I discovered a man by the name of Ravi Zacharias. Unfortunate end to his ministry, very, very sad. But in those early days, uh, he was helpful. He was helpful. I remember soaking up what he had to say. He was giving me explanations for Christian truth that I hadn't heard before, and it helped me stand a little bit taller and get a bit more confident. And I appreciated that in that day. 
I remember listening to a series of studies on what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, because at the time, I was working with a lot of them in my workplace. And I didn't know how to speak with them about their faith tradition, didn't know what to say. And I was dying to give them all the reasons they were wrong. If I could just convince them their beliefs were irrational, then obviously they would have no choice but to become Christians. I was really committed to this. I would listen to this on the way to work and I would get them to rehearse the arguments and then I'd bump into them and say, hey, by the way, have you ever thought about, you know, and I'd try to engage these poor people. How do you think that went? Arguing people into the kingdom of God has never been terribly successful. And one of the reasons is knowledge in itself isn't the core of what it means to follow Jesus. There are other reasons why it doesn't go well, but that's one. Intellectual satisfaction isn't ultimately what we need, part of the journey, but it's not ultimately what we need. Facts don't tend to change our minds, at least not very quickly. Knowledge and instruction on their own tend not to stick for very long unless our will gets involved. Unless we feel it in our bones and we begin to behave differently. For example, no matter how often a mother tells her child not to eat too many cookies because they'll make you sick, child's not going to believe that, right? How can something so wonderful turn you into this monstrous, sick mess? I vividly remember learning this lesson when I was a child. My granddad ate a batch of peanut butter cookies. Granddads don't tell grandchildren, don't eat too many of my cookies. Granddads just give them to you and you do what you want. But my mother had warned me on multiple occasions, you need to slow down on the cookies or the desserts, they're going to make you sick. But these were another level. They were soft, but not too soft. Not too much crunch, just enough. And then when you open the Tupperware container, you know, the aroma, it just, it was alluring. It appealed to my base desires. And as I ate with barely a pause, except to wash them down with milk, I had no idea the gloom that was awaiting me. <laughs> Within a matter of minutes, I can tell you this, my belief in what my mother had been telling me came to life that day in a new way. And my behavior radically changed after that day. So that even now, my cookie intake in one sitting has been drastically reduced and I've been following my mother's wisdom for many, many years, passing it on to my own children. And now to you. <laughs> this is what happens, right? 
when the will gets involved, when we start to feel the weight of that pain, then all of a sudden our belief deepens. Trying to convince a 12 or 13 year old of the dangers of technology is liable to fall on deaf ears until the time comes along where the emotional effects begin to become so oppressive that they acquiesce and they start to believe what you're telling them. And Jesus, Jesus knows this about us. He knows it takes a lot more than some information to get us to be a true follower for life. I'm intrigued with what Mark says in our Gospel reading. And he began to teach them, to teach them. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And we read it and go, how do you miss that? Right? He said it plainly. He gave them the details. I will die, but after three days I will rise again. Mark makes a big deal of this. He tells us exactly what Jesus said. He says, he said it plainly. This isn't one of those obscure, difficult parables that Jesus just says and leaves people hanging. But it's so shocking and nonsensical that Peter takes the Son of God. Can you imagine doing this? I love Peter. He's so awesome. Peter takes the Son of God aside and begins the finger wag, telling him to stop talking that way. <laughs> I mean, come on, Jesus. You're going to scare off the scribes and the elders and the seekers. And we could use some influential people to get this movement going. Some power people. They've got some funding. That would help us. How do you expect to attract the elite, the intelligentsia, when you're talking about getting killed? This doesn't breed optimism, Jesus. And Peter represents so much of what the church wants today. political power and influence. A bigger following. That's what Peter wanted. That's what the disciples wanted. They wanted a big following. They wanted the crowds. And the church today wants a big following. All in the name of making more disciples. Church wants to be the smartest ones in the room. They want to be in the court, in the temple, so to speak, with the elders, with the high priests. They want audiences there. They want to be welcomed and honored so that everyone will sit up and take notice. Give us a platform so we can be influencers. That's what we want. That's what the disciples wanted. And what was Jesus' response to all of that? Satan. You know, as if calling him Satan wasn't shocking and embarrassing enough, Jesus decides to twist the knife a little bit to Peter to make his point. Did you pick up on this? He, he first called the disciples over to him. So the disciples come over, and then he says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. So Peter was talking privately to him. Hey, you know, he needs 
And he says, hang on a second. Hey guys, come on over. Peter is Satan. And then, and calling the crowd to him, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if you're going to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Twisting the knife of humiliation in Peter. Poor Peter. Poor disciples. They had been with Jesus for quite a while now, and they had heard what he had to say, and they were still clueless about what he was all about. They wanted the crowds. They wanted a bigger following. They wanted to make as many disciples as they could. And Jesus seems intent on running them all off. He could have whispered that rebuke to Peter, but that is not the way he does it. Do you get the strong impression that Jesus and his followers might not be on the same page? Poor disciples. And poor us. Here on the second Sunday of Lent. Getting close to Jesus so we can glean more information about God and have our problems solved. And instead, He offers us an instrument of torture and death to carry around. Our own personal cross. Why? Because what we need, ultimately, more than anything else, is not education or techniques for becoming more influential or growing a following. What we need is to have our wills bent in obedience to God. If we're going to follow Jesus, we must get comfortable with the cross resting on our backs. With not having our way. With giving up our ambitions and our expectations for the good life. We must come to grips with the reality that death in the kingdom of God is the only means to life. And it's death to my life and my goals and my church and my ministry and my career. Die to all it. Which is exactly the opposite message that you're going to hear in school and on television and on the internet and on social media. Social media is all about self-display and gaining everything you can for yourself. And Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, you get comfortable with the cross and dying to all of that. And when we do, when we finally get comfortable carrying around that cross, 
along with all of its shame and all of its loss and all of its pain, that's when we're just beginning to understand what it means to follow Jesus. It's an interesting Jesus approach to apologetics. Rather than answering all of the difficult questions, he barely bothers to do any of that. He just says, here's a cross. It's going to be a little heavy. Follow me and do what I say. Funny thing happens to our faith when we carry these heavy crosses. You know what it is? Our belief and our reliance and trust and faith and childlike dependence on God goes through the roof. And the light of Jesus begins to shine. See, that's what the church is supposed to be. That's what origin meant. That's what Pat was talking about last Sunday. When the church carries her cross, then the world sits up and pays attention. When your sales colleague steals your lead and you die and give up the commission to him, even though he doesn't deserve it. When everyone in your organization is in a panic about layoffs, except for you, because you know about crosses. When your own medical and emotional issues are enough for 20 people, and yet you spend your time caring for your neighbors, it's cross bearing And when your friends at school can't quite get their heads around why you're so into this silly religious stuff, and they're happy to poke you and needle you about it. It's cross-bearing. Cross-bearing is the way we follow Jesus. And cross-bearing is the way the world sees God. This is apologetics, Jesus style. How have we missed this? A friend of mine teaches in a seminary in the upper Midwest of the United States. He told me that at the beginning of every semester in this one particular class, he goes around the room asking each student why they're in the class and what their calling is for ministry. And he told me that he often gets responses like this. My goal is to be a regular speaker on the Christian conference circuit. Or, I want to publish a lot of books and have an online teaching ministry. Now, my friend, to his credit, tells them right in front of everyone, a bit like Jesus did to Peter, Oh, please don't do that. Please, he'll say, if you're truly called to ministry, then go get a regular job and quietly serve a small group of people and learn what it means right there to take up a cross and follow Jesus. I don't think they follow his advice, but I'm glad he's saying it. Because Jesus knows more than anything else, we are not information disseminators. It's part of it 
part of the journey. We are primarily cross-bearers, dying to self so the world can see God. Now that may not be what you're looking for today. You may be looking for something else. You may be looking for blessing, for comfort. And Jesus gives us blessing and comfort. He does. But primarily, He gives us this. And that involves a lot of risk for us, doesn't it? It's a risk to follow a God like this. And I'll be the first to tell you, sometimes the weight of that cross is heavy. And it feels like it's going to crush us. But just when we think it's going to, we discover that it's not a burden we carry alone. That Christ is with us, holding us and our cross up, so that the burden becomes rather than oppressive, an adventure leading toward resurrection and eternal life. Dare we follow Him? Thanks be to God.